Hello, this is Sophia. And I'm Victoria. And you're listening to It's All History to Me, Auburn's History Radio Hour at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Each week, we will interview a history professional with the theme of uncovering untold stories. Let's get started. I am in a conventional dither with a conventional star in my eye. And you will know there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. Hello, and welcome back to It's All History to Me uh, with Victoria and I here on Weagle 91.1 at 8 a.m. on Thursdays. Um, We wanted to start off with a quick disclaimer. There was a technical issue last week, and we won't have a recording um, of the episode available on our podcast streaming sources. Um, We really apologize for that. It was a really great episode, but I guess this is a good plug to be like, if you're not listening live, you should be because things just happen. (laughs) Um, But yeah, uh, well, we, for the, for the, I guess for those who missed out, um, we're moving on to our second season of the show, in which our theme will be Uncovering Untold Stories. Um, So now that we've gotten the little disclaimers out of the way, it's time to introduce our guest for this week. Dr. Craig is an associate professor of the Auburn University History Department. She received her PhD and MA in history from the University of California, Los Angeles, and her BS in applied physics and history from the California Institute of Technology. She joined the Auburn History faculty in 2015. Here at Auburn, Dr. Craig teaches the widely popular Honors World History classes, which utilize innovative teaching method, including reacting to the past games. Her engaging style has greatly connected with students, and she has named she was named Outstanding Faculty Member for the Auburn Honors College in 2018-2019. Outside of the classroom, Dr. Craig's first book, Mobile Saints, Relic, Circulation, Devotion, and Conflict in the Central Middle Ages, examined the out and back movement of relics in the within, within northern France and Flanders from the 10th to the 12th century. Her work analyzes the complexities of relic travel during the height of po- their popularity in an effort to understand the tradition's impact on the period sacred objects, people, places, and spaces. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you both for having me. It's really great to be here. Of course. All right. So to get things started this morning, our first question with you kind of ties back to our theme for this season. So how does your work in and outside of the classroom connect to our season's new theme of uncovering untold stories? So I really think this is a great theme to choose. Um, The real power of history lies in telling stories. Um, That's what gives it its drama. That's what gives it its impact. Um, and what's really compelling to me about researching and teaching history is learning about people who, are, who have been overlooked or marginalized. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. People tend to think of history as these big stories like war, empires, crisis, but I really think it's just as important to think about what ordinary people said right. and did and thought um, as much as we can discover that. Yeah. Um, so for my work, it's not just the kings, the queens, the popes <laughs> who make the history. Um, right. And that's what I find it's really important to emphasize in research and teaching. Oh, that's awesome. It's really about the untold stories. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And I feel like definitely when I'm learning history, I think the most interesting stories are the ones of the just the typical person experiencing the period. So, Absolutely. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I found like, I think there's been a more recent shift in like how we view history of like moving away from like the great man as more to like the everyday people. And I think that once that sort of shift started happening and more of like 
a lower level education, more like high school level, I think ultimately my peers got more engaged because it wasn't just like, here's a bunch of really great guys that like you have to learn and study and know what they did. It was more like, here are bigger trends that you're seeing that are interesting and what everyday people would have done and like, here's how you will be show up in history books later. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And I've seen that change. Um, when I was in high school, it was just, here's a list of kings, memorize them. Right. <laughs> yeah. Here's a list of who's important, mm -hmm. memorize their dates. And so I've seen as people come, as I've taught more and more history, like people are coming in with a more complex understanding of the past and like, it's so much yeah. more interesting. Is yeah. The thing. yeah. Um, so yeah, I've seen that change. Oh, that's cool. Easier to relate to, too, I'm sure. Absolutely. Like, yeah. You studied two very different things as an undergraduate. What inspired you to choose both applied physics and history? So it was never really my intention to become a historian. It kind of snuck up on me. Um, <laughs> I went to a really, really science-oriented school, and yeah. I was there to be a scientist. Mm -hmm. I was just not interested in the humanities at all. Um, but my school required us to take a lot of humanities and social sciences classes mm -hmm. beginning in your first semester. Yeah. And so I basically just had a list of classes. I'm like, medieval history, sure, whatever. It doesn't matter. That, <laughs> that sounds easy, fun, whatever. Right. I, in addition to all the math and science and physics and all mm -hmm. of that. Um, so I just basically chose it at random, and I ended up really enjoying it. And it, was about, and it, was a, it goes back to that difference. What I thought was going to be memorize, take a quiz, all this, it became like about problem solving. Oh, yeah. And it became about how can you use basically insufficient data to solve really complex problems. Oh. And that engagement, I was like, wow, this is really different than what I expected. This is really cool. Um, and my advisor basically was like, hey, I'm teaching another class. I'm like, sure, <laughs> I'll take that. Yeah. And then by my junior year, he's like, hey, why not add the major? And I'm yeah. like, I could do that. <laughs> and then my senior year, he's like, hey, what if you just applied to graduate school? Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. I thought, hey, I could do that. Um, cool. So I really just kept it really kind of wasn't a conscious moment where I chose it. Yeah. Um, it just sort of took 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 some time. Oh, that's cool. Um, that's cool. It chose you in a way, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, well, cool. it, it lured me in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So I guess this is a similar follow-up, and you basically answered it, but so <laughs> why did history ultimately win out over physics for you? Oh, gosh. I was trying to think about this, because I was like, as people ask me, sort of, what about that time in my life? And I think I was just, I my, my, um, my, I was writing two theses in my senior year, and one of them involved sitting in a dark room, literally watching things dry. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was the applied physics thesis. Right. Um, and then the other one was like uh, thinking about like walls and what walls, city walls meant to people oh, in the late yeah. Roman period. And I'm like, this is just, and so I was just sitting there like in my, running my experiments and yeah. reading medieval history, and I realized like, I actually enjoy one of these things a lot more than right. the other. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, but again, it was never really my intention. I right. I just keep I just kept on saying yes to things. Yeah. And when my advisor invited me to set, to essentially do medieval history, I thought yeah. I'm never going to have a chance to do this. And right. I at the time I thought maybe someday I'll go back to physics, mm -hmm. you know, and and be the engineer and <laughs> right. make, the, make the money and all right. that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah. And then, um, but I was like, I'll never get the chance to do medieval history again. And so I crash coursed Latin in Ireland that summer, and I clearly never really went back. Yeah. <laughs> I just kept on going with oh, this. Oh, that's so cool. Um, I don't regret it. 
it's been it's been really wonderful and I've met really wonderful people and done some really interesting things yeah oh that's awesome and I like how you said it's like history is like solving problems but in a like different way the different avenue than the science classes and things like that because that definitely makes sense you're trying to uncover the untold stories solve that problem of why it's not there and it's more difficult in some ways than physics because you can always run more experiments. Oh, yeah. Like for physics, you can always um, sort of ask more questions, get more data. Right. For medieval history, what you've got is what you've got. Yeah. Um, and so it's about your creativity and your sort of enga- um, how you can think about solving problems in new ways and looking at it from yeah. a different angle, oh, which I find really lovely. Yeah, that's really cool. Connecting this back to your book, what is a relic and what separates it from other historical artifacts? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So relics are religious objects, and they're usually the body parts of saints. They're not always the body parts of saints. Sometimes they're like something associated with them, like a piece of clothing or something, but usually body parts. Hmm. Um, And on the one hand, people may think of these as sort of mementos, right? Like if a saint dies, people keep essentially part of them to remind themselves of them, but they're really more than that in your in medieval European culture, because relics are more than just objects. They're actually conduits to the power of the saint in heaven. Mm-hmm. So they're not really just like something you'd have that was important. They're actually sort of active in a way. Okay. Yeah. And so these relics carry a lot of power in medieval society because the saints are understood to have that power. Mm-hmm. And so when you have a relic and you're moving around the relic, it's almost as if the saint themselves is moving. Right. Um, and so these are really um, respected and powerful objects. And I got interested in relic travel because I became interested in the question of when they move. Mm-hmm. What does it mean when something so powerful sh- or something that you're expected to believe is so powerful shows up in your town? What do you do? Right. Yeah. Um, and they're outside of their sort of normal spaces. Yeah. Um, and that changes things, and that changes the way people react to them. Oh, that's cool. Very interesting. Yeah. And that's such a cool topic, too, of <laughs> applying the medieval history in a, like a very unique way. I yeah. think about it, um, one of the analogies I sometimes use is the Liberty Bell. Oh, yeah. Because the Liberty Bell doesn't really have much going for it as an object, right? right. It's a, basically yeah. a bell that what ru- was rung once and cracked. Right. And it's through its travel. Like, they put it on trains, and they take yeah. it around the country with a big sign that says Liberty Bell. Mm-hmm. And that travel is sort of what makes people believe that it's interesting yeah. and powerful, yeah. and that's why you have to wait in line to see it and why right. people, like, line up. Yeah. <laughs> and so in, in, in some sense sense like an, it's about an object becoming more than an object for society yeah. but having that kind of cultural power very cool very cool and I guess our last question to take us into the break what has studying the movement of relics taught you about people in society uh, I think that studying relic movement really taught me that there's never just one side to the story We have these really one-dimensional images of most of European society, Mm -hmm. medieval European society. Like we think of people as these poor peasants. They don't really think that much. They don't really question what they're told. They're subservient to the kings, to the church. And what I really found in studying relic travel is just how much medieval people had their own thoughts and ideas about what the relics were, about what they meant, about their relationship to the saint. Um, medieval people resisted, medieval people questioned, they contested power, they had their own sort of ideas and goals. And I think that's the story of people and how they think being more complicated than it can appear on the surface. Yeah. Um, That there's always something going on. People are never just one thing. Right. We always bring our complicated lives 
um, no matter what period or, t uh, or place we live in. Oh, that definitely makes sense. And good to have like things like this to remind us that too, because I know that I definitely like put that period in a box too sometimes <laughs> or don't realize that those people ha were like, you know, dynamic people and yeah. not just subservient like you Sometimes they run the relics out of town. People oh. are like, we don't want you here. Wow. Get out. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah. Huh. It's different than you'd expect. Yeah, definitely. Way different. It's cool. I have a question that's probably a little weird, but you mentioned that a lot of times, like, relics are body parts. Yeah. How yeah. did, like, how were they able to keep those intact as they kept oh, moving from yeah. place to place? They're always in reliquaries, and so you can't actually see what's in the box. And this oh. actually becomes a point of contention because sometimes people say, I don't think there's anything in the box. Mm -hmm. And you aren't really allowed to open it up oh, and yeah. show people. So what do you do? How do you convince people? Yeah. Um, and reliquaries are really fascinating objects because they can contain multiple relics. Um, they're usually um, extremely elaborate. In my, in my period, they're, they're, they look more like small chests. But if you go to Europe today, you'll see a lot of relics in the church. And usually they will have like little windows in them where you can see the bones inside. And that's a development that happens a little bit later oh, um, yeah. in, when, they, when they start to use um, uh, crystal. So you can make little windows mm -hmm. so you can actually see that there's a relic inside. And sometimes in some Italian churches, you'll just have an entire skeleton lying there under glass. Oh, um, wow. And so those are whole body relics. Oh, very interesting. Oh, wow. huh. And so the people that moved them, that like, was that a business angle as well? Did people pay to see them or was it more of a just religious like it was a service that they were providing. Both and. Okay. There's a lot of different reasons that they carry relics, and fundraising is absolutely one of mm. them. But it's also a way to sort of tour around the saint to increase okay. their power. Oh, yeah. And it also can, like, there's, there's a whole bunch of different things it can do. Um, it can protect against plague, in theory. Like, yeah. you sort of walk the saint out to sort of see the problem ah, <laughs> so that okay. they can, like, then solve it. Interesting. Um, but again, it's also this gives people access to relics that they wouldn't necessarily have had normally right. and so you've got stories about people literally who wouldn't have had, had the ability to touch it grabbing it and kissing oh, it uh -huh. and the monks flip out and wow huh. <laughs> that's um yeah so it's a different yeah. I think a lot of different um people bring a lot of different ideas about what they're doing the monks that are traveling with the relics the people that are accompanying them mm -hmm. the people who come to see them mm -hmm. the people who tell them go away right, <laughs> like, yeah. there's a lot of different um angles to the yeah, story that's cool very yeah. interesting dynamic story for sure yeah we're gonna t go on our first break but we'll see you in two minutes Hello, and we're back. Um, if you're just joining us, we're here with Dr. Craig, an associate professor here at Auburn. Um, and we're about to start working on, talking about her teaching. Um, as we mentioned in your introduction, Dr. Craig, you and your honors world history classes have become very popular here at Auburn. To begin this segment, we, we are interested in discussing your unique teaching approach with you because of how well the process uncovers untold stories for students who may not enter your class with a fervent passion for history. What inspired you to begin teaching your classes using these reacting to the past games? So it was actually my former colleague, uh, Dr. Sarah Hamilton. She's an environmental historian, oh. and she got me into reacting. Oh. Um, she loved it, and she invited uh, me and the other history faculty to come see it oh. in action. Yeah. And at the time, she was teaching an environmental history class, and she was playing a game about um, the Love Canal, oh. which was this environmental disaster in the 1970s. Mm. Um, 
And on the day I was there, I remember um, there was a whole bunch of uh, students who were playing like homeowners who were holding a protest oh. and holding signs and screaming. Huh. And then there was a mayor and he was like blocking the protesters out of the room oh. and called in like troops and like there was a die roll and I'm like this, whatever this is, I'm doing this. Yeah, that's <laughs> this cool. This is so exciting and so engaging. And so I tried out a couple of games and I'm, I got completely um I fell completely in love with reacting. Wow. And so now most of my classes, I think, include reacting to the past games. Yeah, that's really cool. Huh. I've played a lot of different ones over the years. Yeah. Um, games set in um, Athens, um, in the Roman Republic. Uh, there's a game on the Council of Nicaea, the Second Crusade game, just yeah. a lot of different games. Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> cool. Okay. So you kind of touched on this, but could you yeah. share with our listeners an example of what these reactionary games usually look like? Yeah, and actually my, my first game of the semester is about to launch next Thursday. Oh. This is um, in my History 1017 class. Um, we begin with a game, the first game is set in Athens at the end of the Peloponnesian War. So all of these games are set in moments of crisis, right? right. Um, times when there's a lot, of, a lot of different ideas about directions people should go in and about yeah. like what's the best thing to do. Uh -huh. um, so the Athens game begins where Athens has lost this huge war with Sparta. They've completely depleted their resources. They have no empire. Essentially, they've been reduced to nothing. And things are really grim. Right. And so that's the scenario. And all the students get a roll sheet who te that tells them who their character is and what direction their character wants, in this case, Athens, to go in. Okay. So who is this person and what do they think Athens' future should look like? Um, it's not really a reenactment. I find that people are a little confused about that. Right. It'd be really boring if it was a reenactment, right? We that's would just true. act out what happened in history. Yeah. But that's not what this is. It's actually a game. Yeah. And it can turn out differently than the history because some no. people will actually achieve what they want to have achieved. Right. And sometimes that's not the same people who, quote unquote, won ah, in history. Okay, yeah. Um, which is really fun for me because it turns out differently every time. Yeah. So essentially it's like, it's, it's a little ways like running a history experiment. Yeah. Like what if this had happened instead yeah. of that? What if this had, this person had, you know, randomly been assassinated instead? Right. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Um, no one dies at the games. Um, it's a little like being in Hamilton. Oh, yeah. But instead, <laughs> you're the person that's making the decision that's going to change everything. Right. Um, there are alliances. There are betrayals. It can get really yeah. intense. Um, but at their core, they're always really about these big issues that faced people in the past and that mm -hmm. face us today. Um, in the end, the Athens game is about democracy. Right. Um, is democracy the best system for Athens? And then there are other people who are essentially anti-democracy. And so it's about exploring these ideas about what makes democracy thrive, what makes people believe in democracy, um, how anti-democratic ideas thrive, why some people choose to attack democracy. Right. Um, Socrates may or may not get put on trial. <laughs> we'll find out. Yeah. Uh, we'll see what this run is like. Oh, that's cool. Um, cool. Yeah. Nice. Athens is a fun one. Yeah, yeah. That sounds so cool. From there in this class, we'll go on to a uh, game around Republican Rome, ah. which is set in the crisis of Catiline. Okay. Again, it's, it's, it feels really relevant, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Essentially, there's this person who has been accused of trying to overthrow the republic. 
um, is there a conspiracy or isn't there? Right. Um, and sort of the last days of the Republic before it transitions to essentially one-man rule. Oh, right. Um, and the final game is set, in this class at least, is set in Ming, Ming China. Uh-huh. And, it's a que- and it's a game about um, how do you challenge authority? Oh, yeah. Um, because the emperor has all the power. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he's supposed to behave correctly. Uh-huh. So how do you um, essentially criticize someone who could have you executed at right. any minute. No one actually yeah. dies in the classes. I feel, I <laughs> feel like good, I should good. clarify that. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, so it's fun. in some sense about about morality yeah. of, of those who are in charge. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Those all sound awesome and great ways to learn <laughs> about history and also get to be a part of it in a really unique situation. People get really into it. Yeah. I get really into it. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. um, I know you mentioned that you pick them like based off of like crisis but like what specifically draws you to a certain like conflict to do the pa- the games with so i should clarify that i don't actually design these games myself because they're so complicated uh, yeah. um and so basically this is on a, fo- a volunteer basis faculty all over the country uh-huh. have just said i think this would make a great reacting game yeah. and they take it on themselves to sort of write and develop it okay. and they play test it with people so oh. i've played games that people are like working on oh that's that fun. are still unpublished yeah um uh, and so they write them and develop them and play test them over years. And so some games are like in their like perfect state, right. like they've been played a million times. And some are like, well, let's just give this a shot. Oh yeah. Um, it's always it's always interesting. It's I always cool. have sort of house rules I've developed, so right. it's a lot easier to to run the game the third time than the first yeah. time. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, I I've actually only written one game. It's a mini game about the investiture controversy which is this conflict, this great conflict in the 11th century between the Pope and the Emperor. Oh. And so that's just a little mini game. It took me forever to write, and that's just yeah. a one-day game. Yeah, oh, wow, wow. <laughs> um, I've never written a full game. Oh, yeah. Um, but I really love it. It takes a lot of work because, I mean, the instructor's manual alone that tells me how to run the game is hundreds of pages. Oh, wow. Um, oh. Roll sheets are really long and complicated because they're mm. trying to capture the complexity right. of being that person in that moment. Um, So if you think of someone who's going to drop into your life and your victory objectives and what you want to see, it's actually actually a really interesting thing to try to develop and describe that for someone. Yeah, that is really cool. So when each student is assigned a role, they get a role sheet and that's Mm -hmm. what they go off of? Yep. Okay. And so you're not yourself. Right, Um, right. You're this character Uh with their background and their goals. Okay, very cool, very cool. Yeah, my brother took your class and he was all into it and telling us about like how how it all went. He got to be the emperor and yes, was very very into the role. So that was cool. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yes, yes. Uh, got to give him a shout out here. Some people some people want to be the emperor. Some people yeah. don't want to be the emperor. Yeah. <laughs> but I feel really strongly. This was in the the Ming China game. Yeah, yeah. I feel really strongly. I let um I I roll a dice. Yeah. I let fate decide because oh, who yeah. who gets to decide what they're born into? Right. Um, yeah. You don't get to decide to be emperor. You're born to be emperor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> yes. so luck, luck favored him. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. He was excited about it. Oh, that's, that's cool. wonderful. Yeah. Okay. So do you have a favorite historical moment to teach or a favorite game or character that you like to watch your students work through? I do, but I can't talk about it. Okay. Because <laughs> there are spo- there would be spoilers. Oh, yeah, I see, I see, yes. There's can't always, spoil it. I mean, it's, it's again, these, these games are really set in these moments of, like, crisis when big ideas are clashing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you with texts that are about propose like in, proposing and inciting these ideas, mm. but there are always twists, right? Yeah. In actual history, like and in the games, there are always twists. Yeah. So I can't really talk <laughs> about my favorite moments right. without giving it away. That's cool. Um, but I do have a favorite kind of moment. Yeah, and that's when um, a student particularly a student who told me at the beginning of the class is like, I hate public speaking, I uh -huh. hate history, I'm not into this. When they, there's always a moment for them where they find their confidence in their voice. Yeah. Um, it's really amazing to watch someone who was really hesitant about this just have this moment where they're like, I'm gonna tell these people exactly what it is and exactly what we should do. And I just, they just clear the room essentially Aww. and they, 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 um, they find their power. That's really cool. Um, I love that. Yeah. I love that when That's when awesome. someone when someone who said that they didn't love public speaking is literally standing on the table like right. yelling, yeah, <laughs> yelling yeah. at people. That, that's so really neat. Those are my favorite kinds of moments. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. Getting to apply the history but also the like professional skills or just skills to have for college is great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's not a people are always saying like, Oh, how many questions do I have to ask? I'm like you will be fighting for airtime. You yeah. really want to, like, you will have people get close to their characters. Oh, yeah. Even though, essentially, it's it's no one that you've ever been close to. But, right. like, you start to sort of sympathize and empathize yeah. with this person's perspective as you play them for so oh, long. That's so cool. Yeah. yeah. Another great skill to have. Definitely, society needs more empathetic people. <laughs> it's it's hard to teach that in history, yeah. actually. Um Again, when you're just reading about something in like a textbook, mm. it's easy to just be like, "Oh, this is a name of a person. This is yeah. what they wanted." Right. Um, when you when you do a reacting game, you get, I think, a better sense of like, "This was a real person," and you may disagree with everything that they wanted and everything that they did, but you can understand yeah. sort of where they were coming from and why they felt that way. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that's something that's really hard to do in a traditional history yeah, class. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then I feel like it probably, too, proves that, like, you know, history wasn't predetermined because I feel like I can think about that sometimes, too, is like, oh, of course this is what happened. Yeah. But using games like that, you realize that it it wasn't, like, obvious in the moment and Absolutely. lots of factors contribute to it. Things can turn out really differently. Yeah. And I think that that's, like, again, why this is sort of valuable for the present because we realize, like, the future is not predetermined. Yeah. Like, the things that are happening today – we right. don't, what will look obvious to people in the future mm -hmm. is not obvious to us now. We right. don't know how things will go. Yeah. So you got to stand up and you got to keep on fighting for the future that you want to see. Definitely. Definitely. Great advice. Um, do you typically get a positive response from your students after the game ends? Or like, is it easier for you to connect with your students through this teaching style? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm probably not the person to ask. <laughs> you should be asking them. <laughs> um, but in general, I think I've gotten really positive responses um, from my students. Um, in some ways, I think the games are less like a class and more like a giant group project, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, if some people are just like, I don't care about this, like, I'm just going to check out, right. um, the whole game doesn't work. Right. Um, because yeah. you're missing those pieces. Yeah. But that's almost never happened to me. That's good. Always that's good. sort of people step up and they bring their best to their characters. Yeah. Um, and I think some people have really um, connected yeah. uh, with history in ways that they haven't through these classes. Um, I think in general they agree that it's a positive experience. Um, my hope is really, again, because you're, you're playing, you have different allies and things through the three games, at least in this class. Uh -huh. um, and my hope is always that everyone really becomes a community yeah. as a result of taking this class. Yeah. Um, that you 
have these relationships going forward. I've had some really fantastic classes. Mm-hmm. I've had some really fantastic games. Oh. Um, there have been there have been classes. It's been really hard to say goodbye to. Right. Yeah. Um, at the end of things. I'm sure. I'm sure. For me, at least. Maybe yeah, not for no, them. No. No. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they feel know. the same way. Getting to go through all those cool things together, and then all of a sudden, you don't get to have that. It feels like you go semester. through an experience. Yeah. Together, I yeah. Think. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so what advice do you have for any of our listeners who might be interested in developing a unique approach to teaching history, uh, inheriting some of these games and trying them out, or just want to, like, you know, shake things up? Well, if anyone wants to try reacting, come talk to me, yeah. because um, I'm, I have a lot of experience with reacting now and in the different games. Right. Um, but I think with all history teaching, um, the more you can get people actively thinking and yeah. doing, the better. Right. Um, no one gets into history for listening to things. Right. Um, so the more that you can get into the questions and the critical thinking and the action and the drama. Yeah. Like his, <laughs> history's dramatic. Right. And the people who love history love drama. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. I'm honest, um, we loved it. We're the, we're the people with the popcorn. Right. Um, just watching it go go as it's going to go. Yeah. And so I think the more that you can capture that drama and that sense of like there were really high stakes. Yeah. Um, I think the more engaging your classes will be. Very cool. Very cool. Great advice too. All right. We're going to take an ad break, but we'll see you in two minutes. Two minutes. Hello, Hello. and welcome back to It's All History to Me. Um, if you're just joining us, we're having a discussion with Dr. Craig. Um, and this semester, in addition to focusing on discussing the uncovering of untold stories, so Victoria and I are hoping to use It's All History to Me to spotlight the many different applications of history in the professional world. Dr. Craig, something that Victoria and I have found especially interesting about your experience is that you currently serve on the advisory board of the Journal of Tourism History. What does it mean to study tourism history, and why is it important that we study it? Uh, so, <clears throat> sorry. Uh, so tourism history is really at its core about thinking more deeply about travel and its implications and effects for people and places. So most historians who are thinking about tourism are thinking about the modern world, and the development, and in many cases, overdevelopment that goes with oh, the sort yeah. of capitalist system surrounding right, um, modern right. tourism. And what's interesting about tourist studies is it can go many different places. So you're, you have historians who are interested in what's called dark tourism. This is tourism associated with essentially sites of great tragedy, right. um, like the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, you have tourist historians who are interested in how tourism affects the environment um, and the communities that become tourist destinations. Right, yeah. uh, you have people who are interested in the infrastructure. Um, I think we're seeing, like, and I think this will be really interesting after oh, the yeah. pandemic yeah. to see how these infrastructure systems can handle or can't right. handle tourist traffic. Um, and of, of course, you have people who are interested in travel um, as a facet of class, gender, race, oh, yeah. who gets to travel where, um, where do they go, what effects does that have on the people around them? Yeah. Um, and I think tourism history really sit, sits at the center of all of these things. Wow. Um, but I love travel. Yeah. And so for me, um, as a medievalist, um, the question for me is, are, when we talk about travel in the medieval world, can we talk about tourism as part of that? Um, and so this brings up interesting questions about what we mean by tourism. Um, yeah. I notice um, there's a sign on, um, I think, uh, concourse now be a traveler not a tourist right and so you have these sort of negative associations with tourism it's like you don't want to be a tourist but you do want to travel it's like well what's the difference right like and who gets to decide who's a tourist and who's a traveler because you may think you're the traveler but you may look to other people like a tourist yeah and so there are all these sort of moral categories that 
fell into it too. That's so interesting. Yeah, when we were first like thinking about this topic, I I had no idea that there are like so many different angles to look at it, but that totally makes sense that it's like a complex idea concept to think about in a lot of different ways. That's really cool. Well, I think I clearly I got into this because of my interest in travel. Right. right? Yeah. And I think travel really uniquely um, it sets up a unique experience, right? Yeah. Where you have the traveler who's mm-hmm. coming in with their ideas and their assumptions right. and their interests, and you have the people around them yeah. who may react to the traveler in a different kind of a way. Right. Um, and you have, like, all the systems, the systems yeah. that allow them to travel, like, the people that allow them to travel. Yeah, like, definitely. you need, like, networks of inns and transportation and all these right. things. Um, and what, it, what I always find interesting about travel literature is, like, just how, in some ways, it taps into a really universal human experience. Yeah. So with my monks who travel with their relics, mm-hmm. like, there's parts where they're just, like, Oh, we woke up late and we got a late start. <laughs> right. <laughs> and we didn't make it to the place we were meant to get in by dark and it was getting dark and it was oh, yeah. raining. And I'm like, everyone who's traveled has been in that moment. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, oh, I should have left an hour earlier. Right, right. Um, this is not going well. Yeah, a universal, um, universal situation. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's cool. Okay. So kind of talking a little bit about the journal mm-hmm. itself, the first edition of the Journal of Tourism History was published in March of 2009, which is relatively recent. So do you know what motivated the publication of the journal, especially like in 2009, was it that the like field was coming into prevalence or that people felt a need for it or is anything specific with that? So I'm admittedly not sure of the exact origins of the journal. Okay. Um, I wasn't involved with it back then. Right. Um, but I think that tourism studies is a relatively new field. Yeah. And it's an interesting field because it brings together people from so many different disciplines. Yeah. So what I really love about history is, like, um, if you're someone who's interested in everything, history is the field for you. <laughs> yeah. Because there's so because in some sense you're using many, many different channels of evidence to understand the past. Right. And I think that tourism studies is one of those sort of newer fields fields that is really good at bringing together um, information and evidence from different kinds of disciplines. Um, Again, people who specialize in infrastructure, in in cultural history, um, economics. um, Clearly, this is all in tourism in the modern world is very much um, a facet of capitalism. And I think that we're going to see more people studying this as it becomes really clear what impacts tourism has in the world. Right. there are impressions that travel will like, like, I mean, we, we live in sort of an Instagram tourism yeah, age, right? Yes. And so it's become a, about those visuals and about right. capturing those visuals. And so if you go to a place that's very popular, it's just lines of people waiting to take photos. Yeah. And that's a very different experience than than tourism perhaps like even 20 years ago. Absolutely. And so I think that as tourism evolves and as we see its impacts in the world, people will become more and more invested in studying it more closely. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I was thinking that too, like trips over the summer, like what is the motivation for taking pictures? Is it that you want to like look back on it? Is it that you want to brag to your friends about where you were? And then I was thinking too, like as you're taking those pictures, is it like more valuable personally to be taking them or to just like, you know, live in the moment and not worry about the pictures of where you're going? So that's yeah. interesting. It all intersects with media studies yeah. and with culture and with um and with digital technology and yeah. all the sorts of different things. Right. So very cool. It's fun. Yeah, yeah. How did your position on the advisory board for this journal come about for you? Uh, I really became involved when I had a really long conversation with um, uh, the editor, Eric Zuelo, mm. about the question of tourism. Um, 
his argument had always been that tourism doesn't really start to th be a thing until the 18th century, oh, yeah. when you have these sort of young men doing the grand tour, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Like, as a way of becoming cultured and refined. It's mm -hmm. a very European vision of tourism. Yeah, yeah. And it's a very modern version of tourism, the idea that, like, there's a package deal. Right. And so I really started to talk to him about some of these complexities. I'm like, well, we can talk about tourism in certain aspects of the pre-modern world, right? Mm. Um, so, for example, like, if you're, if you're checking boxes pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the medieval period checks a lot of tourism boxes. Like right. there are people who, who do this professionally. Mm -hmm. um, there are, um, there's a really strong infrastructure set up to like get the number of pilgrims that yeah. want to go to Jerusalem across to there. And same for the, um, uh, the great pilgrimage trail to Santiago de Compostela. Mm -hmm. um, and so my conversations with him really, I possibly, I'm not sure if he's fully convinced, mm. but convinced him that tourism studies has a lot to offer to um, people who work in the pre-modern world right. and that people who work in pre-modern times also can have a conversation about what tourism is. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so that's how I got involved in it. Yeah, very cool that it's not confined to one definition and that like the f facets of it, I guess, would be found in all over the place and all over time. That's yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay, so what, unstory, what untold stories do you get to tell through being a part of the advisory board for the Journal of Tourism History? Uh, so being part of the board, um, it's really more about evaluating submissions to the journal than, right. than submitting my own research. Right. Um, but I really, in broad, in broad terms, I really do love travel stories as a source for history. Yeah. Um, I used to teach a special topics class, and maybe someday I'll do it again, about medieval travel, oh, in which yeah. we would read medieval travel accounts. Oh. And I love, again, travel accounts from a historical perspective because you're learning so much. Yeah. Um, I know that when I, when I say medieval travel accounts, everyone's mind immediately goes to Marco Polo. <laughs> right, um, right. We do read Marco Polo because it's a really... Um, foundational source mm -hmm. but there are so many other medieval travelers oh, yeah. and there are so many other people who again are have they tell their own stories right. in the case of travel literature or like in that they want to tell the story of their travel yeah. and what and there's a lot more sort of different people than you would expect mm. um so we think of marco polo as like a merchant a man but there are many women who travel um, there are the great travelers of the medieval Islamic world, um, Ibn Jaber, Ibn Battuta, mm -hmm. who bring a very different perspective um, yeah. to the world that they travel through. Um, and so I just, I love reading travel narratives. Yeah. Um, it, they really, they're really interesting, first of all, yeah. but they're also really, I think, rich sources for uncovering more about the traveler right. and also uncovering um stories about the people that they met and the places that they traveled through, yeah. which in some cases show up in no other sources. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say that's why I like, I love travel narratives. That and, is really neat. Um, I love talking about them. Yeah. Yeah. I think it does a great job of uncovering a lot of other angles of history that maybe we wouldn't consider or being able to learn about a place from a different perspective than just a rote description. So that's cool. My favorite source for this class is, um, uh, a source written by a friar, Friar William of Rubric, oh. who essentially takes the same journey as Marco Polo. Oh. Uh, he goes to the court of the Khan, mm -hmm. 
um, the Mongol Khan. Right. Um, but where Marco Polo is just absolutely mesmerized. Everything is beautiful. Everything is fantastic. Mm. Friar William complains his entire way there. Oh. He's really tiffed. Everything. Yeah. The food is crappy. If I, if I can say that. <laughs> yeah. um, like, it's cold. It's miserable. He yeah. doesn't like being part of the Mongol court. Oh. Um, so it's just even better because it's just like, it's the it's the instead of the romanticized travel yeah. story of Marco Polo, it's this it's this guy who's just absolutely had a terrible time right, <laughs> traveling yeah. through Central Asia. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is more fun to read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Easier to relate to, I'm sure, because, like, you're thinking that they're all, like, you know, dealing with the weather, the temperatures, and their medieval clothing uh, as well. Like, that could, can't be that like enjoyable yeah he he was absolutely miserable yeah. <laughs> the entire way which is and, and, and again it becomes one of these great travel accounts and one of the great ca- accounts of um of the mongol court yeah. um but he was not a fan <laughs> right. that's so funny <laughs> has being a part of the journal motivated you to travel to any new locations so I've always loved travel, so I really don't need much pushing. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's necessarily increased my level of travel, but um, I think it's made me think more deeply when I do travel yeah. about the nature of the experience right. and about how I'm reporting it and what effects my travel has on others and what effects yeah. my, the travel has on myself. Um, I did, as a result of my, as a sort of tandem to my research, I tried to bike the routes one of my relics traveled because oh. I had enough information about where the relic had stopped yeah. that I decided, oh, I'm going to try to bike this. Yeah. Um, the difficulty with this is that um, now the medieval roads and the, the things that were really important places uh, in medieval in uh-huh. the medieval world are now like muddy fields and bus stops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it rains wow. a lot in Belgium. Right. <laughs> so it was, and so I sort of had that sort of William of Rubric oh. experience where it was basically me pushing my bike through three inches of mud. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. But I did, wow. but I did complete it. Yeah. I, I, I traveled the route at the relic. Oh, that's really cool. Huh. So, yeah. So interesting that you get to see like how it's evolved from then to now. That's cool. I mean, and it will evolve further. I think right. this is the thing with tourism studies is that travel is one way to capture yeah. um, what humans are up to right. and what we like to do. Yeah. Oh, that's really neat. A cool, cool historical <laughs> topic to explore more for sure. Oh, and I love travel. Yeah. It's just, it's just too much fun. Yeah. Yes. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> cool. All right. We're about to go on our last ad break of the show, but we'll see you right after. Hello, and welcome back to our last section of It's All History to Me. We're about to get into our little last section of um, trivia questions and the questions that we ask every guest that comes on. Um, So are you ready, Dr. Craig, for the the trivia? I mean, no, but but that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) I've had, like, enough coffee at this point that I can can try. Yeah, Yeah, yes, yes. It's okay. It'll all be good. Yes. <laughs> what American company was involved in the notable 2017 artifact smuggling case, the United States of America versus approximately 450 ancient cuneiform UF- tablets and approximately 3,000 ancient clay culé? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this, the, the, the smuggling scandal that I'm most familiar with are the smuggling scandals surrounding the Museum of the 
a quote-unquote museum of the Bible. Ah, okay. So these are, basically they found out that a lot of the um, manuscripts um, displayed were basically like stolen. Oh, wow. And that there was, I think, an Oxford researcher who oh. was like responsible for some oh, of the stealing wow. and selling. Huh. Um, but that's not a company. That's, right. a mu- that's a, again, quote-unquote museum. Right. Um, but, okay, I'm digging in my brain here. Was it... <laughs> But I remember reading something about Hobby Lobby being uh-huh. associated with it. Was it Hobby Lobby? Yes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm so happy. that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I don't remember what the connection was. Yeah. Because I was focused on the like basically betrayal by this researcher right. of um, selling the things that you're supposed to be studying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I remembered. Yes. That Hobby Lobby was bound up in this in some right. way. Right. Was it yeah. the financing? Yes. Or? Yes. I think. So. Or well, we have like the answer that we found online yeah this is hobby lobby bought the tablets from a dealer in the uae under questionable circumstances the case resulted in the return of the artifacts to iraq following their likely looting in 2003 oh so it's a different sort of yeah it's a different scandal yeah very interesting though like i vaguely remember hearing about this in 2017 very very interesting yeah yeah and strangely enough, I know what a bullae is ah. because one of my first projects as an undergraduate was on researching um, the invention of writing. Oh, yeah. Um, and sort of the steps by which um, s- written signs, like essentially stamped signs in bullae, which, right. are, which are little balls, okay. um, came to be um, essentially letter forms. Oh, yeah. Um, so the process is generally like you used to have tokens that essentially represented, like, numbers. Okay. And then to record transactions, people would put the tokens within, like, a clay ball. But once you put it in a clay ball, you couldn't see what was in it. Right. So what you would do is use the tokens to stamp, like, what the tokens were inside. And those stamps, this is the theory. It may may be discredited now, but that those stamps eventually became the signs that would mean those numbers yeah disassociated from the tokens themselves that's cool um you can see some of them in the louvre it's really cool oh, that is they're really, really cool. unassuming it's just like a list essentially like a mud snowball yeah. looking thing oh, but this is where writing began huh. that's in, really again cool. I, in, in theory right right <laughs> that I'm yeah oh but. that's cool and that ties well to our second trivia question Uh-oh. okay so this is kind of like early world history but connects to travel world history okay so what three inventions are credited to the sumerians of mesopotamia mesopotamia as the keys to facilitating travel and good exchanges well basically based on what i was saying before i'm gonna guess writing yes okay yes, that is one of them <laughs> um goodness let me think possibly my guess is like Possibly wheel technology and yes. cart technology? Yes, yes. Um, oh, goodness. Okay, I've got the two easy ones. Yeah. Maybe... <sighs> kind of connects to earlier, to the last one. Huh. Oh, it would be um, not dom- domestication of animals for, for cart pulling? or What I found was money. That was the oh, third that thing. makes a lot of yeah. sense. Yeah, but th- that <laughs> makes sense too to like traveling the farther no, distances. I, you need the animals. animals have been domesticated long before. Uh, I was yeah. just like, I was just guessing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, money would make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the answer we found was that the concepts of money, uh, writing, yeah. and the invention of the wheel are all credited to the Sumerians, and that allowed humans to begin to travel and exchange with other cultures. Perfect. I actually 
another early history memory is um, in my, I think, sophomore year, I was living in like a terrible housing situation. So I remember my desk was under my bed. Uh. It was like, <laughs> like not like, it, like, a, like physically a cave. Oh. <laughs> and at the time I was like, I was really into reading translations of Sumerian poetry. Oh. So I have a very strong association between Sumerian poetry and, and, yeah. oh. <laughs> and my terrible housing situation yeah. sophomore oh, year. That's so interesting. <laughs> But no, it's beautiful. Fun. It's yeah. absolutely beautiful. Um, Sumerian epics, um, yeah. Gilgamesh and, and yeah. others are really great reads. Very cool. Very cool. Yes. Yeah. All right. We're about to ask our last two questions that we ask every guest that comes on. And the first one is, why is it important that we study history? Uh, so I wish um, I had this quote memorized, but I don't. Um, I always put on my syllabi for my classes a quote from the late Representative John Lewis. Um, on the day of his funeral in 2020, um, there was an essay that um, the New York Times published um, that he had written, essentially to be published on the day of his funeral. Oh, wow. Um, it's a beautiful quote, and I wish I had it memorized. Um, but essentially, he says, like, you need to study history because people have faced these challenges before. Right. And the solutions are are found in their actions. Oh, yeah. uh, the way he puts it is um, you, you stand in the shoes of the people of the past. The challenges that have come before, and I think about today, right, whether it's um, racism, white supremacist attacks, book bans, attacks on civil rights, people have fought these battles, right? Absolutely. And, yeah. and they fought hard. Right. And so by studying the past, I think, A, we get more inspired. Like, you really can change Things. You really yeah. can change and make things a better future, but it's also very practical. How do they do it? Um, what tactics? What tactics and ideas um, yeah. are powerful against these forces? Oh, um, awesome. And so that's what I think. That's yeah. why I think uh, studying history is really important, especially in this moment. Yeah. When so much history is happening around right. us. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. And our last question of the morning. What advice do you have for current and future students of history uh, and or people interested in history just broadly? So if you're a student of history here, my advice is come talk to your professors. Like when they have office hours, their office is just open and you can come talk to them. Um, I know I sort of described my journey into history as sort of like I fell into it. What keeps me in it yeah. is really the people. Aww. I have amazing colleagues, yeah. and they're so inspirational, and they're so smart, and they're so dedicated. Um, I love talking to them. And I wish more students here, whether you're a history major or not, um, knew that you can just come talk to us um, and that we do really cool things. Well, yeah. they do. <laughs> I Aww. don't know about me. No, you all do. You all do. I think people have this image of history for professors as we're all these like incredibly dull people wearing no. tweed jackets so we have no <laughs> sense of humor but it's just like nothing could be further from the truth yeah um I really love um people who do history they're really dedicated and passionate and yeah. smart people yeah. um and so I would say talk to professors yeah. um and again, I think like the landscape, as you said in the beginning, like the landscape of history is changing. Right. I think people are really recognizing um, just how complex and interesting it is and that it's not the history, the worst class you took in high school. <laughs> right. It's really fascinating and engaging. And I think actually podcasts like this have done so much to rehabilitate history's reputation Ooh, as yay. something interesting and cool <laughs> and that you would actually want to study and yeah. that you would actually want to be engaged with. Right. Um, so listen to podcasts like this one. Ooh, yay. <laughs> oh, that's awesome advice. <laughs> yeah, very cool. Okay. All right. 
we're going to do some thank yous before we close out. Um, thank you so much for Dr. Craig com com for coming on today. We really yes, appreciate thank it. You. Of course. Um, as always, thank you to the Auburn University History Department and then our faculty advisor, Dr. Schultz, for their continued support of all of our stuff with the History Club as well as with this podcast. And thank you for to the College of Liberal Arts for supporting us. Thank you to our researcher, Colby, who helps us write these questions and do all this behind-the-scenes work that, you don't, that doesn't really get seen on the show or heard on the show, really. Um, thank you to Ray for helping us with our new cool new intro and outro that sounded absolutely amazing. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, thank you for Weagle for allowing us to use your airtime. We really appreciate it so we can get to reach the people that we want to. And as always, thank you to our listeners who are here. Maybe this is your first time or this is, I don't know, your 10th and more time listening to our show. We appreciate you regardless. Absolutely. And we'll see you guys next week.